0: Hello and welcome to The Franklin Files. I'm Gordon Franklin, and I'd like to thank you for joining us and listening to this message today. I trust it'll be a real challenge to your mind, a comfort to your heart, and practical hope for the chapter of life that you're facing today. And open it this morning to the um, 18th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 to 4 where we read a most familiar story about um, children. And this morning we'd like to talk about um, a little subject that I've called, If I Should Wake Before I Die, which really has to do with the tremendously invaluable lessons that can be taught to us, Jesus said, by children and by our own children. And I trust that we'd be able to transpose and superimpose these to our families for the health of ourselves and those who follow us, our children, that they might find us faithful. The 18th chapter, the first verse says that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to himself and stood there in their midst and said, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child does he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Uh, I was in university when one of my good friends and fellow students I met a lab partner, a little Chinese gal, brilliant mind and of Buddhist persuasion by faith. One day she said something to me from which I've never fully recovered. She knew I was a believer, and she said, You know, you you Christians, you teach your kids to pray all the wrong way. You teach them to pray if I should die before I wake. It would be better, it'd make more sense if you taught them to pray if I should wake before I die. And she went on to say and i have to say i couldn't really disagree with her she went on to say that most people and even most christians she had met were kind of half awake when they should be in a beautiful baby sleep worrying about life insomnia worrying, and taking pills and conversely she went on to say they're half asleep to life and hope and the joy of it when they sh- when they ought to be awake And you know, no one or very few, she said, seem to be vibrant and totally alive. No one seems to be turned on to what's going on around them, to life itself. I heard that and I thought, what an indictment. I thought about it a great deal. I started teaching. One day I was teaching a background course in contemporary issues and we were having a discussion on life's meaning. And I turned to a young man in the front row who, uh, for all of his 21 years, seemed to have endless answers about life and asked him, I asked him, Ted, how, how long have you lived? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, how long have you really lived? And he said, well, about 21 years. I said, no, 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 no. Well, that's the way you calculate your, like your your birthday. That's how long your heart's been pumping blood. But I doubt very much if that's how long you really live. I, I said, let, let, let me illustrate what I mean um, uh, about experiencing and really living. And I told him about Halloween night, 1962. I was 16 young friend of mine and myself decided to take it upon ourselves vigilante style to catch and identify the rural mailbox vandals who for three previous years had come along and as a van, as a Halloween prank had smashed the eight neighborhood mailboxes that were located a, a mile and a half south of our farm. I, I told him how we sat uh, uh, in his uh, dad's new 62 Chev pickup with loaded 22s incidentally children don't attempt this trick at home and uh, we were ready to shoot the tires out of the car uh, of the car these perpetrators and uh, Shortly after 11 that night a car screeched a halt in front of the mailboxes and four figures loomed out of the darkness with crowbars uh, Ready to do their dastardly deed and my friend Garth uh, Hit the ignition and the lights of our truck that was hidden about a hundred yards behind some bushes and as he did the engine stalled for a moment, allowing the culprits to see what was happening and to jump in their vehicle and flee at a high speed on a, a road that moved towards our farm. But well, we followed suit on this gravel road, speeds hitting up to 60 or 70 miles an hour, and we were okay for the first mile. Uh, and then, about a half a mile south of where we live, we came upon what in our neighborhood was known as the Hickson Curve, a sharp S curve that two weeks before had claimed the lives of two other young men who were driving a pickup truck too quickly and they couldn't make the curve and uh, the perpetrators of the crime with had a heavy car they went into the curve first they fishtailed but they made it and I yelled at Garth as we were going into it with a light-ended pickup truck to slow down because he didn't know the curve but it was too late we fishtailed hit the ditch the bumper caught a large boulder and it was estimated that we rolled end over end three times and then over on our side without seat belts and came to rest upright in our seats. We weren't shot, we weren't squashed, we were temporarily unconscious, but we came to uh, in a few moments to realize that we were both alive, no broken bones. I had a large gash across my head when I hit the windshield and I was losing blood badly. We realized there was little traffic on the road and we would have to walk at the mile home to my, my folks' uh, a place and this we did with uh, garth half dragging me as i slid in and out of consciousness and uh, well you can imagine the sight we presented and the horror my expe- parents ex- uh, experienced as these two blood-spattered individuals broke into their sleep about midnight that uh, night but no time for lectures now time for action again my father phoned his father to pick up what was left of his chevy pickup truck and rushed me the 12 miles into the brandon general hospital emergency unit And we had just reached that unit, and they administered some local freezing to my forehead so they could start closing this this gaping wound and suture it up. When the sirens and bells began to ring in that hospital, and a doctor in a uh, moment or two turned to the nurses and yelled, Get him out of here, uh, referring to me. Now, I didn't know what was going on, it was Halloween and i didn't know if this was trick or treat or if it was the spirits of the moon or what but they began to wheel me out and as they did the attendant yelled something about we have a 622 a major trauma accident coming in you'll have to wait well as dopey as i was i remember thinking for a moment hey bud uh, this is pretty major too but then i turned my head to see what was coming in and as i did i saw something i will never forget uh, at first i didn't recognize it because it looked like under sheets Or on top of a a gurney, Uh, two of them actually, they were rushing by me what looked like two large charred hamburgers in the shape of human beings. And in horror, I realized that what I was seeing was uh, human beings that were burnt almost beyond recognition in a tragic, and that's what had happened, head-on semi-trailer accident. Uh, They had uh, been burnt and they were rushed in to be worked on. They died within an hour and then they were back to work on me. But in the meantime, my dad, uh, he saw it too. And then he came into the room next door where I was waiting in the bed. And for the first time I can ever remember, because he was a very reserved uh, man, uh, he verbally, he said, son, son, I love you. That could have been you. And I don't know what I would do if I ever lost you. And I'll tell you, in that moment, I realized that my life had been spared for some reason that Halloween night. And in that moment, I lived with such energy and intensity that if I lived for a million years, that moment will eternally be part of my life because I was fully alive when I lived, when I lived it. And I turned to the student and said, now, Ted, let me ask you that question again. How long, how long have you really lived? well he hesitated and gulped and said "It's a man doc if you put it that way maybe maybe an hour no 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 maybe a minute maybe two most of my life has been a meaningless passion of time between a few moments that i was genuinely alive what an interesting commentary one i believe that reflects what most of us would see when we look in the mirror a picture of a person that too often too frequently too much of the time seen days and weeks and months of our family just slip away from them i i know more often than not this has happened to me i don't know where my life's gone it seems to me that just as soon as my pimples cleared up, my hair fell out it was 1952 and i uh, and i started school i i blinked and it was 1964 and i was off to college then it was 69 and time for marriage and ministry and and then it was 74, and I held a baby girl in my arms in that Chicago hospital, and I blinked, and, and she's in third-year university, and the, and the calendar says 1994. And we're all there, aren't we? Seeing life whizzing by and crying out, sometimes just hold the phone. Here I am, and am I really living or, or just barely making it on some kind of an endless treadmill of days and nights and missing so much of what's going on? In my family or well, one of the great advantages and the spiritual perks that the believer has that is that our Lord and Savior the lover of our soul said that he came so he could have we could have that kind of a life a life where we can really wake up before we die he said it in John 10:10. I came you remember I broke into your history so that you might have life and life more abundantly I mean real living real living well his initial disciples his these apostolic charismatic cousins of ours said that sounds great but how do we do this how do you get this lifestyle that makes us real kingdom livers what's the best picture that we possibly could have and I think that was the context and the motivation behind their question uh, that morning when in verse one they asked the Lord Lord really who has that gusto Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice that they did not say, how do you get in? They knew that or they wouldn't have been following him. But who's the greatest? And what does Jesus say? He says, unless you humble yourself and become like little children, literally in in the original, you haven't got a hope of experiencing this lifestyle. Unless you approach me and life the way they do, you can't be part. Of what I'm about well the question is what did Jesus see in children what can we see what have I seen in my children in that picture gallery of theirs uh, uh, in their heart and mind that so qualifies them to really live to really be the greatest in the kingdom and can qualify us to be that way too Well, my experience with kids tells me that he's thinking about three things that characterize them and control and capture uh, you and me, or they can do if we'll let him have his way with us. Those three things are these. First of all, I've noticed about kids, my own kids and others, that they're convinced of their value. Secondly, they're consumed by joy. By his joy and the joy of life. And thirdly, they're confident in their future. A lesson of benefit to all of us. Convinced of their value, consumed with his joy, confident in his future. First of all, I think God used this picture of children because he saw in these little people. People that were convinced of their value or their worth. Now there's a lot of fuzzy thinking about this this humility thing that the Lord holds up in verse 4 here. About becoming like a little child, because we interpret it as some kind of a self-effacing, self-giving person who puts himself down and puts everything else before uh, themselves. Let me ask you this: Have you ever met a kid like that? I tell you, if you do, or if you have one, I think you should bronze him because he's a an endangered species. He's going to be alone in some kind of a hall of fame for kids. I don't think that the Lord saw this in kids. Uh, and this is what he was talking about. I think he was talking about being able to go through life without having to be propped up or worrying about appearances, without having to be overly concerned about self-image or worth, which grows on us as we get older because of the supernatural, miraculous sense of value added that Jesus has given a child. I remember when we were living in Chicago, we had some friends who had a little girl and one day during a fierce, one of those fierce summer Chicago storms with the lightning flashing and the thunder roaring, the little girl's father, uh, my friend, uh, went upstairs to see where Jenny was and as he ran up the stairs to check on her, looked into her bedroom, he found his little girl standing on the windowsills, leaning against the window, spread eagled against the glass and he, and he yelled at her, Jennifer, what are you doing? Get away from that window. And she turned to him and said, Daddy, I think God's trying to take my picture. That's not a bad way to look at yourself. You see, here's a little girl who knows who she is, who knows her value, who knows her worth. And if you're going to live fully in the 90s, you're going to have to feel valued about yourself. Not misappropriated, not some kind of a pop psychology, self-help, new age thing. But one of the reasons that Jesus came to planet Earth was to do something that we would be unable to do ourselves, and that is feel differently about ourselves when he covered our sin you know what i've noticed i've noticed that most believers most believers i know are down on themselves they're lugging they're carrying baggage that they can name just like that all the things in their life that they have done wrong and they beat their chest and they say man there's so much wrong with me course, there's a lot wrong with you. There's a lot wrong with me, too. But here's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus himself came not only to die for our sins, but, but listen, to come into your life by invitation only and absorb everything that is dirty and ugly and negatively and free you from that. You see, Jesus not only wants to cleanse you from the dark side of your personality, we talk a lot about that, but he removes those things that ought not to be, so you don't have to wrestle with them. He imputes to you over all these things his his righteousness. I don't think most of us got a handle on that and we're not convinced then simply humbly like a little child is like I notice my children are of the value but we can be. Have you ever envisioned it? Uh, maybe this will help. Have you ever envisioned when you're when you when going to get to heaven? I, I, I can hardly wait. I don't know about you maybe you're just going to kind of slum uh, stumble in there or slouch in there or do the Tim Conway shuffle but I think that I'm going to goose step in there, strut right in there. Yell at all the angels, out of my way, angel, after all, they're only messengers, aren't they? You there, Gabriel Annie, go get me a pizza. Uh, What what a feeling to be able to go before the seat of Christ, look at the Father and just stand there. And I'm not going to say anything because I don't have to. You see, Jesus will be there. And he'll say, Father, I'd like you to, to meet my friend Gordon, the perfect one oh man, I hope my wife is there. I, I, I think I, I hear a question. You saying, man, where, where, where do you get off saying that? That's flip. That's irreverent. Hey, it's in the book. Here's your value. Here's how he sees you. The book says your sins are blotted out. They are buried in the deepest sea. They're remembered no more. And it says that Jesus will present you before the Father spotless without blemish and all the things about which you you detest about yourself, all the things that you have blown in the last year, Jesus says, let me take them on myself and make them my own. And that's what he does, doesn't he? And old CP Jones had it right when he wrote those words that we hardly sing anymore, but they're great words. Hear the blessed Savior, he's calling the oppressed. Come you heavy laden, come to me and rest. Come no longer, tarry; I your load will bear. So bring me every burden and bring me all your cares. Of course, we really didn't need uh, uh, one of the Jones boys to tell us that, did we? It's already in the book. 2,500 years ago, the Spirit of God settled upon that old Jewish prophet, and he said, what will they call the baby, the Messiah? And as the Spirit settled on him, Isaiah said in the ninth chapter, the sixth verse, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Don't miss it. It's not just Counselor, but Wonderful Counselor. You see, if you were to go to a good counselor for help and he does his job after a little while, you'll feel terrific. And he'd feel terrible because through a process of discussion, everything that's negative about you is moved over to him. And the one who, in this case, supposedly in a human case, can bear it. In psychology, we call it transfer. But no counselor can achieve it perfectly save one. And that's why they call him the wonderful Counselor the ultimate therapist who takes upon himself everything that is ugly putrid distasteful dirty Rotten in your heart and in your memory bay takes it on himself Makes it his own never forget it. That's the good news of the gospel is That you and I can have this childlike freedom that comes from deliverance from all that's negative and dark and that can start right where you are now so you can have life passionately intensively and convinced of your value and your worth in him but when you wake up before you die there's a second thing that i've noticed uh, that children have to tell us a second quality and the the lord would love us all to have it he wants this kingdom child to be like him fully awake fully alive grabbing all the gusto he can muster and the second thing is the children have to tell us is they're not only convinced of their value, but they're consumed by a spontaneous joy. If there's one thing I love about kids, if there's one thing we can learn, if we will, from the pity on, the little tots, it's that they're naively, spontaneously joyful. I remember uh, my son Mark, years ago now, he's about five, we took the family to Disneyland on a Christmas vacation, and it was back in the days when you bought tickets separately at different levels for the rides, and we, we had torn around there all day, and uh, we were about ready to leave when he turns to me and says, "I I, I want to run another ride, Dad, on those special bumper cars." And I said, "Well, son, I'm out of money, and we're out of time." And, and and he looked up at me and he said, "But Dad, Jesus wants me to go." And, and, and I said, "Say what? I don't understand." And he said, "Well, you were reading me those archbook those Bible stories. You said that whatever we feel, Jesus feels." You said that if we cry, he cries. You said that if he, I laugh, he laughs too. You said that, didn't you? And I said, I guess I, I guess I did. And he said, well, if he feels everything I feel, I want him to have another laugh right now. And I think he'd enjoy it if I had another ride right now. Not bad theology out of the mouth of babes. Friends, we serve a God, the text says, who wants us not only to be freed from the baggage that keeps you feeling free, From feeling worthy and valuable, but a God who wants to fill us with a childlike joy again this year that will enable us to live life in an incredible, spontaneous, uh, infectious, enthusiastic joy. Uh, Do you have that in your life right now? In whatever you're doing? You see, that's what spirituality is all about. It's not just getting a ticket to heaven, it's about a Jesus who can invade your life and create in you whether you're 18 or 81 a spontaneous excitement about living that's what he said he said Do you remember that first church of ragtag saints a bunch of guys who were far from heaven but facing the winter of their existence and as he prepared to die in John fifteen eleven, he said Fellows, these things these things I have told you so that my joy may be in you and your joy can be made full just busting out all over just like a kid I like that line that G.K. Chesterton said when he said, I think God is the only child left in the universe, and all the rest of us have grown old and cynical because of sin. What a thought. Learn it from your child. You say, God? Like a child? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I do. Think about it. How did God create daisies? I say, like a child. When my daughter Rochelle was just about Oh, two or three, just a little girl. We had a game we'd play whereby I'd cross my legs and sit on the edge of the uh, chair, and she'd sit on my foot, and I'd toss her in the air and and, and give her a ride of a bucking bronco. And sometimes I would uh, let her down to the floor and then pick her up again, and we'd do this until my leg ached, and I'd let her down, and invariably she'd yell, "Do it again, Daddy! Do it again!" We'd start this again five, ten, twenty, thirty times. Every time I'd stop, the kid would still be yelling hysterically, "Do it again, Dad!" do it again. The excitement of a spontaneous joy of a little child. Well, how did God create those daisies? He created one daisy. I, I, I'm sure of this. This is must be buried in the Greek someplace. And the childlike heart of God, he clapped his hands and said, do it again. And he created daisy number two and something within the heart of the creator said, do it again. He created daisy number three and four and five and 50 billion, trillion days later, the great God of the universe is still creating with a childlike excitement and, and yelling, do it again, do it again. Would you like to make that your theme? Your theme for the days and years to come. Do it again, God. Restore to me something again of the dynamic I experienced at camp so long ago, of that raw joy and enthusiasm of a kid who's not just born from above, But it's experiencing the joy The Lord every day But now it's got a little dull and boring You say Then become like a little child again Surrender fully to him And allow him to energize you with With his resurrection life So that you just keep going And going and going uh, that's what he's saying to you. Let me do my thing in, 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 in you. I'll take possession of you. I'll change you. Not only give you a, sle- a clean sense of worth, but I'll fill you with excitement so that you'll have joy like you've never known it before. And that's why the gospel's good news and why Jesus said, learn it from your children. Then there's a the last quality of children that I, I've noticed and I think the Lord was longing for his children to see. That is not only that they have an absolute uh, Convinced of their worth and are absolutely consumed by his joy But finally that they have an absolute confidence in their futures Do you? One of the most delightful things about my children I've noticed Is that... um, and I've noticed it in other children as well, as we pastored from place to place, not only in privileged children, but even underprivileged children, that you, uh, we would bus into church, you would think that they had nothing to look forward to, uh, but uh, the thing you notice about them is society hasn't beaten the hope for the future out of them yet. They still believe in the future. So, so you ask them, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? And they say, well, I'm going to be, a, I'm gonna be a, a pilot. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to be a pro hockey player. Oh, but, but, but what do we do as adults? We, with cynicism, smile on the outside, but on the inside say, yeah, sure, kid, grab a slice of reality. But they believe in the future. Now, as they get older and real, ugly realism sets in, and some of their goals aren't met, and their dreams are shattered. And it is difficult, to be sure. I'm not much into autobiographical films, but someone said to me back a while ago, you preachers need to understand the hurts and anger and hate more and you need to uh, pick up the video and watch the film of the autobiography of Malcolm X. So I did Uh, lots of stuff that was good in there, some of it bad and different, but surely one of the most painful scenes has to be when Malcolm realizes that the system will not allow him to be a lawyer and his dream is shattered. And sadly, no one introduced him to the real dream maker. But here's the good news of the gospel, is that we have a Jesus who creates and recreates dreams and visions for us. We, he's saying, can be like a little child, a kingdom child who knows something about his faith, is a man, is a woman who has a hope for the future. You remember that the scripture suggests that where there is no vision, the people perish. When the young no longer visions and the people perish, and uh, they no longer dream dreams. Listen to me, what did Jesus see in children that made them the greatest kingdom people? He saw people who believed that they could still do something incredibly with themselves and they had confidence no matter what had happened to them in the future. And as you start the next day of your life, so often I see people in this school that I teach in, in the church living, acting like they don't have much of a future. And I say to you although they're acting like they're old and dying at 21 or 41 or 61 uh, That this doesn't have to be but it will be if your dreams of the past have become more precious than your vision of the future I see them and they're cynical and jaded And uh, In fact, they don't believe in tomorrow and their reaction to this message probably would be yeah Yeah, yeah, this is a standard preachers talk. It's wonderful but uh, really doesn't say much to me. Do you see yourself there a bit? Then I'd like to reintroduce you to a God who wants to make you believe in the future, whether you're old or young. You say, but I'm old. I'm middle-aged. I'm retired. Abraham was 94 years old and God gave him a new vision. What he's saying to us is you're never too old. You're never too young to a God who can make you believe that the future will be better than your past. If there's anything argument I have with much modern psychology that unfortunately I think the church is bought into is that we're so orientated to the past we're digging up our roots we want to understand the person themselves they got to understand their case history their past their background where they've been from and while all of those things are important I'm here to tell you on the basis of this book that while all of the factors uh, and when all the factors are in what is more important than your past and what is more important than where way you're raised and what is more important than what people did to you is your vision your dream of the future and jesus wants you to make you as a kingdom child like a child who controls your vision of tomorrow and makes it greater than your dreams of yesterday and that's the gospel of the children the gospel that could make people fully alive the gospel that can make your home the greatest place on earth the gospel that can turn us into little children make us know our value make every day not happy but spontaneously joyful and make us believe that there is a great future that's his promise for you let Jesus have his way with you and it'll be the greatest day year and life you've ever known.